Thank you so much, Brother Courtney, for that prayer of supplication. And I thank you also, on behalf of the congregation, for your expertise on the drums and what that adds to our worship uh, in music. Thank you so much. Uh, being Native American, I'm kind of partial towards drums. But anyway, I promise not to break into dancing yet. But, uh, and Sister Amy, as always, thank you so much for what you do on the piano to just enhance our worship and music. I particularly enjoy the, the um, offertory special. Thank you. And I thank each of you for being here today, and I'm honored that you've chosen to come and to offer me the opportunity to proclaim God's Word before you. I pray that what uh, God shares through me to you from His Word will enhance you in your walk with the Lord, or if you're not a Christian, to come to experience this wonderful, transforming, uh, powerful experience of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles over there, we begin reading in, in verse 14. As you're finding your place there, if you're not already there, I, I know that much of what I share in preaching through the Gospel of Luke, many of you, if not, if not most of you, you already know this. You've read it. You've experienced it in Bible studies before. It's hardly anything, quote, new that I'm going to be sharing with you in this familiar gospel, particularly if you're like I am, having grown up in a Bible teaching, Bible preaching church. But you know, as, as we walk through this wonderful gospel, my, my prayer and my desire is that that God would open our spiritual eyes to, to, to be able to see our Lord in a renewed way. In a way that maybe we haven't really looked at Him before. Even if you've walked with the Lord by faith for decades. Or maybe you're a brand new Christian. But to be able to see our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ in a fresh and a renewed way such that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and bring revival, a, a personal revival in our relationship with Christ, a, a, a church corporate revival that would just infuse new divine spiritual power into us as a congregation, that we would recapture our first love, that would we regain that, that original sense of zeal and excitement over being the people of God. And I pray that God would do that for me and, and for you. This morning, as I said, we'll pick up in chapter 4 of Luke. And, you know, when we left off, Christ, we had, we had experienced through the eyes of the Gospel writer Luke, we had experienced the baptism of Christ. And, and, and all the manifestations of the three persons of the Holy Trinity and Jesus being baptized and the Holy Spirit coming down upon him and that booming, authoritative, divine voice of God saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased and Christ himself being raised up from the baptismal waters by John the Baptist. We, we are beyond that now. We, we also saw that the Spirit of God took... Jesus led him into the wilderness. And there for 40 days in which he fasted. And even after that, he was tempted by Satan. 
God allowed his son to experience this intense testing, if you will, as to qualify him as the Messiah. And so now, as we begin to look at verse 14 in chapter 4 of Luke, if you're not careful, if we are not careful, as we read the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would almost be inclined to think that we go immediately from the temptation in the wilderness to Jesus' ministry in Galilee because we leave off in verse 13, it tells about the devil departing from him. But then in verse 14, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, uh, of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding regions. So looking at that, we might surmise that Jesus was tempted and he went straight into the ministry in the region of Galilee. And that's the beauty of the collection of the gospel writings. Because where Matthew and Mark and Luke do not focus upon that first year of Jesus' ministry, John does. Where Luke is focusing upon the Son of God as the servant of all the people, the, the Savior of all the people, John in his gospel is highlighting the deity of Christ. And the fact that he is indeed the only begotten Son of God. And so in John's gospel, and those of you that have been blessed to sit under the teaching of my son Tim in the equip hour on Sunday evenings, and have been walking through the gospel of John, this is a reminder to you. You know, you're saying, oh yeah, we know this. Because in that period of time between verse 13 and 14 in chapter 4 of Luke, there's a time of a span of about a year. Jesus has been actively ministering in portions of Galilee, but primarily in the region of Judea and specifically Jerusalem. If you go back, and I don't advise that you do it now, but in your note-taking section of your, of your uh, worship guide, the blanks, you might write down John chapter 1, verse 29, through chapter 4 of John. And go back and see the wonderful, important, significant things that Jesus has already done before we get to verse 14. I'm not going to go back and read them all, but I want you just to get the, 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 the synopsis of, of what Jesus has already done in his Judean ministry in the Gospel of John. For instance, in John chapter 1, we find that Jesus is there in the region of Jordan where John the Baptist is baptizing. We, we remember how John looked up and saw Jesus approaching and that wonderful exclamation, proclamation, if you will, by John the Baptist when he said there in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In that same chapter in John, John chapter 1, we see Jesus calling his first disciples. He calls Andrew and Andrew's brother Peter and Nathaniel and Philip. We, we see the omniscience of Jesus as, as Jesus is telling Nathaniel things that he didn't even realize. We see Jesus embarking upon his first miracle in John's Gospel chapter 2 when Jesus turned the water into wine. And, and, the, and he exhibits his omnipotence, his power to be able to change water into wine. We see the holiness of Jesus and the passion and the zeal that Jesus has for the holiness of God and, and the temple and what it represents in chapter 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple 
there, verses 13 through 22. We see in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. And all of this is, if, if you didn't read it, if I'm not telling you this, you, you would have missed it. But in that famous chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we know that encounter between, between the Lord Jesus Christ and that learned Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus when Jesus revealed to him that night in that encounter the startling revelation that nobody goes to heaven, nobody experiences the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Hey, Nicodemus, it's not about obeying the law. It's not about rituals. It's about faith. About regeneration. And that's packed in there too. We see Jesus in chapter 4, as chapter 4 begins in the Gospel of John. And this is bringing us back to Luke chapter 4. As Jesus is leaving the region of Judea, it says in chapter 4 of John, verse 1, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea, which would have been Jerusalem too, and he departed again to Galilee. But verse 4 says something significant. In verse 4 of chapter 4 in John, it says, But he needed to go through Samaria. So Jesus is, is, is demonstrating that he's here not just to minister to the Jews. Listen, any self-respectful Jew would not travel through the region of Samaria. But Jesus knew in his heart that he was called to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. And we know that famous encounter between the Son of God and that Samaritan woman at the well. When Jesus told her things about herself, that she was startled that a Jew who would be talking to her would even reveal. All of this. And with that, word gets out, doesn't it, folks? Of course, now we have the help of social media. But even in that day, when it was simply word of mouth, word gets out about this Nazarene who possesses authority to teach in a way that not even the Pharisees could teach. Like no rabbi could teach. A man who possesses power to turn water into wine. And of course along the way, he, the, the scriptures tells us, he healed a nobleman's son who was near death. Oh listen, the word's getting out. That he's not only interested in the Jews, but he's also shown a keen interest in Gentiles as well. And that he is preaching and teaching with power and authority and exciting the people about the kingdom of God. And, and so now he comes on the scene in Galilee. And pick up with me there in verse 14 of chapter 4 of Luke. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Listen, I want you to first of all focus upon, if you're writing notes in your, in your little note-taking section there, you can put the Lord's popular initiation. Listen, when he shows up in Galilee, his initiation is very popular. His, in, his appearance initially has great popularity. Because of the things that we just recounted that had already experienced according to the Gospel of John. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that even though Galilee is a reasonably small region, and that's where Jesus' hometown Nazareth is, 
But even though it's a re relatively small region, Josephus calculated that there were about 240 villages and cities all through that region. And Jesus would spend about a, a year and a half ministering in the region of, of Galilee. In all of those towns and cities, wherever there is at least 10 Jewish men, there would be a synagogue. And we're going to see the significance of the synagogue because it's the worship center for the Jews after the destruction of the temple in 586 by the Babylonians. Just about every community where at least 10 Jewish men were gathered, there would be a, a synagogue. And the synagogue functioned primarily as a place for teaching the scriptures, proclaiming the scriptures, educating the youth, and then special uh, social occasions like bar mitzvahs and thing, weddings and things like that. So we see that there's an excitement in Jesus' initial appearance in the region of Galilee. Because it says there, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Look at the combination there between God the Son and God the Spirit. We saw that at the very baptism of Jesus when the Spirit of God descended upon the Lord and never left him. Because the same Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. He shows up in his ministries in, Ju in Judea and now in Galilee under the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus was always aware of the power of the Spirit of God upon him. And it's evident to the people that this man possesses a power no other human being seems to have. And there's great excitement in that initial impact upon the region. I say that also because when we first encounter the Lord, if you can remember the first time that you heard with your heart the truth of the gospel and you encountered the living Lord, there, there was that initial excitement. I remember when I was a young boy, 10 years old maybe, you know, in, in, in a church revival service, there was great excitement. And that special meeting and the gospel was shared and, you know, and there was lots of emotion in the air. And I remember my friends were all talking about, I'm going to get saved tonight. I'm going to get saved tonight. You know, and of course, I got caught up in that wave and I was excited. And, you know, the preacher, he was preaching and he was stirring emotions and, and tears were running down my face. And, you know, and I saw the others and they were going down the aisle. And oh, it was really an exciting time. And I, you know, I just got caught up in the move of excitement, the initial impact of Jesus created great excitement in my life and I did like everybody else. I went down to the front of the church and I, you know, prayed a prayer and signed a card and later got baptized and, and I was in. But then I went back to school. <laughs> I went back to my usual group of friends. I was among my everyday family. People who knew me. Before the great emotional experience in church. And suddenly I noticed I wasn't as excited as I was that night in the church. Uh, gradually I noticed that I began to drift back into old habits and old ways. And even though Jesus had made such a, a powerful emotional impact upon me at that time. The reason I say that. Is, is, is the Christian faith cannot be gauged 
upon emotionalism and pure sentiment, folks. Because sooner or later, after the emotional experience, you're going to go back to regular life. And you're going to be in the midst of regular people who knew you before. And I noticed my school friends, I told them, I got saved. Yeah, you know, I said, big deal, Charlie. We heard you cussing out on the playground. <laughs> You're just old Charlie Martin. We've known you. Tell some of my cousins, I got saved. So, you're just Charlie. We've known you since you were a kid. Oh, smaller kid. I'm just saying. And so, so, this was a tendency, I think, as I shared in my testimony, it was years later. Even though I believe in that revival service, the Lord was moving on my heart. He was stirring me. I was becoming conscious of my sinfulness. I was becoming aware of who Jesus was. Don't think it was a wasted moment, folks. But I'm telling you, it was not the moment of conversion in my life. It wasn't until I was about 24 years old that God confronted me with my life and the absolute truth of the gospel message and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's when I heard Luke 9, 23, when the Lord says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I didn't hear that in that revival service. That's not what I responded to. But when I was faced with the reality of the responsibilities of life and what my life was amounting to, ladies and gentlemen, that afternoon up there in the hills of Virginia or West Virginia, somewhere in that region, at a service that we were a part of, that's when I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and started following Him. And I've never been the same since. That's when Jesus began to radically change Charlie Martin. I was never the man that I was before after that. Praises be unto God. And I say that simply because we need to understand you don't put a whole lot of stock in people getting stirred up emotionally. Now it's great. I believe that a genuine encounter with the Lord will stir your emotions. Don't discount that. But don't bank on it either. Jesus didn't. In John's Gospel in chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Now when he, speaking of Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs, which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Oh, crowds of people. They were getting excited. They were getting stirred up. Look at the miracles. Listen to his teachings. Come on, get on board. Get on the bandwagon. Everybody, come on. And many were coming. But guess what? It didn't impress the Son of God. Because he knew in the end He'd have 12. Oh, there was a great popular initiation of the Son of God. But let's move further. Because not only do I want you to see in God's Word the, the Lord's popular initiation, I want you to see as we move further the Lord's shocking declarations. If you were a pollster and you were polling people about the popularity of Jesus... 
there's going to be a drastic drop in his popularity once we get beyond verse 15. And so let's look together, if you will, because Jesus is going all throughout the region from synagogue to synagogue, teaching, teaching, but then it's time to go home. Where's home for you? Don't say heaven, because <laughs> if you're a Christian, that's a gimme. Yeah, home for me. You've heard me talk about the, the sprawling metropolis of Roxburgh. Not. <laughs> I'm a country boy. I, only, I didn't even grow up. Folks, confession. I didn't grow up in Roxburgh. That just happens to be the closest town, a dot on the map. You go about 12 miles towards the Virginia border in the wilderness. Out in the sticks. You'll find where Charlie Martin grew up. Out there amongst the creek. And, <laughs> and in the thickets. But where's home? Because sometimes it's hard to go back home. And Jesus discovers that. He's going home to Nazareth. We've known about Nazareth, haven't we? My goodness, the whole story of Luke started in that little insignificant town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. <laughs> that's where Mary was. That's where, that was her hometown. That was Joseph's hometown. Hey, that's Jesus' roots, if you will, his biological roots. He's going back home. Now, mind you, he's done miracles, he's, he's, he's dazzled people, he's cleansed the temple. Popularity is booming. He's going back to his synagogue. You, hey, you would think at this point his popularity is going to skyrocket because the homeboy made goods coming home. He's got a name for himself and he's coming home. Ticker tape parade, right? Mm, stay with the story. I know that's probably what you're thinking to me right now. Preacher, stick with the story. In verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, you see, Jesus was a good, faithful Jew. He, he wasn't a church skipper. He didn't look for opportunities to skip church. He didn't look at it as a drudgery. I believe that Jesus was on the Sabbath in the synagogue wherever he was, and especially back home, because he had godly parents, didn't he? A godly mother and, and a godly guardian in Joseph, I believe they taught him the importance of being in the synagogue. And as Jesus was growing and maturing, he probably was elevated. In a synagogue, you didn't have to be an a ordained preacher to be able to read the, the Word of God. You had to be someone respected by the synagogue, and you could read the Scripture. So, as it was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. There's a president of the synagogue that kind of orchestrates the activities of the synagogue. Then there's a keeper of the scrolls who knew where all the scrolls of the Old Testament were and he would get the right scroll and put it in the hand of the person who was going to read the scripture that day. And it happened to be Jesus of Nazareth. Plop, he puts the scroll in his hand. Jesus stands up to read. That sounds very nice. I know some people today that, you know, still insist on standing up to read the Word of God. I don't, I don't begrudge it. I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. Just understand, that's a Jewish tradition. Jesus was simply honoring the Jewish tradition of standing and reading the Scripture of God. It shows respect for the Word of God. But can I be honest with you? I'd, rather, I'd much rather have a lot of people who stand on the Word of God rather than simply standing with the Word of God. Any backslidden carnal 
person that has a Bible can stand up with the Bible and read on it. But a person who's truly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and committed to follow Him and are sold out to Jesus, that's the person who stands on the Word of God. Not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. I challenge you to be that person who stands. So Jesus stands with the Word and He reads. And, and, and so He comes with an authoritative reminder because the scripture has already pointed out that he's, he's been given a scroll. The scroll that he's reading from is the book of Isaiah. Look at verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. I don't think this is coincidental. I don't think it just so happened that Jesus showed up at Nazareth on the Sabbath that they happened to be reading from Isaiah. This is already preordained because he's announcing something significant to them that only he could announce. No other reader could hold that scroll that day and read it the way Jesus read. First of all, we see Jesus' authoritative reminder to the people, reminding them of the Messiah's anointing by the Holy Spirit, the way you determine the person that, that the, the Messiah has arrived is you will see the evidence of the Spirit of the Lord on him. Why? Because Isaiah said in Isaiah 61, Jesus is reading. In fact, he's probably quoting it. My goodness, he's the one that inspired the writer, Isaiah. He knew this text. But whether he read it or whether he is speaking it, in verse 18, Jesus is saying, The Spirit of the Lord is up on me. My scripture translation has me capitalized because it's talking about the only one who could say that at that point, and that is Jesus Christ. For thousands of years, while the Jews have followed God, and the promise of the Messiah was out there in the future in the words of the prophets. This is the moment. This is the, the day. This is the hour. This is the minute where the very promised Messiah will be able to say, not just read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. How do we know that? Because Luke has already told us back in verse 14 that he came into the region in the power of of the Spirit. Holy Spirit is all over the Son of God. So Jesus' authoritative reminder to the people in that synagogue in Nazareth that day is number one, when you see the Spirit of God upon an individual, you can assume right away that is the promised Messiah. Ta-da! But then he goes on to very descriptively lay out the Messiah's divine calling. Because in essence, he's talking about himself. In verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. We read a lot of this in our responsive reading. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Stop. Because Jesus stopped. It's not the end of the verse in Isaiah. 
But that's all Jesus wanted to read. Because that's all he's come to fulfill. I'll explain. Jesus not only has described how you can identify that he, is the, that he is the promised Messiah because the Spirit of God is upon him. But he goes on to say, if you watch my ministry carefully, you'll see that I have come to, to, to minister to the spiritually impoverished. I have come to minister to the spiritually enslaved. I have come to minister to the spiritually blind. I have come to minister to the spiritually burdened. And if you see that, you're watching the Messiah in action. Folks, you could just about take Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and lay it right up on top of what Jesus is proclaiming. Now this has got the people's attention. Well, in case you're wondering, as I said, Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. If you wonder why Jesus stopped abruptly at, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, recorded there in verse 19, if you go back into Isaiah, you'll see there's more to the verse. In fact, if you were to continue to read in the original uh, um, book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 2, it would go on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. All the Jews knew that. God's not only going to send His Messiah to take care of His, to, to minister to His people and to help His people, but the, when the Messiah comes, boy, He's going to whip somebody. <laughs> that's not in the Scriptures, but that's just my vernacular translation. He's going to bring a day of judgment upon this wicked, sinful world. God's going to rain down judgment when the Messiah comes. Jesus didn't read it. Did he not believe it? Of course he believed it. But Jesus didn't read the second part of that verse 2 of six, chapter 61 of Isaiah because he was putting the emphasis on his first coming and not the second coming. All the things that, that Jesus has read, he would fulfill in his first coming. He knew... And you and I know from the readings of the Scriptures and the teachings of the Scriptures that He's coming again. Could I get an amen right there? I mean, He's coming again. Amen? He, he is coming again. Amen? I believe that with all my heart just as sure as I'm standing here today before you that any minute Jesus Christ could come again not as that mild-mannered, humble rabbi Oh, ladies and gentlemen, when he comes, he will come in power. He will come in glory. He will come representing the holiness of God. And he will bring the vengeance of God upon this sinful, wicked, rebellious world. But that was not his mission then. And look at verse 21. Because the people are like wide-eyed. Well, look at verse 20. Then he closed the book gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're tracking. They're tracking. <laughs> they're, I mean, you talk about some people that are, are, are struggling in their minds. They're tracking. Because what he's saying is absolutely scripturally true. And then they, they can't get over it. They know, they sense the authority with which he's saying it. 
He's not just reading the Bible. He's speaking God's Word as if He were God Himself. You can probably hear a pin drop. It says, And all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Him. Man, like a laser. They're following Him down from the podium. They're following Him to where He sits. Like, what's next? And then Jesus lays it out. Look what he says in verse 21. And he began to speak to them. Look, look what he says. Today, not sometime off in the future, not 20 years from now, Jesus said, today this scripture, not just any portion of the Bible, this scripture, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now I promise you, me nor any of the members of the pastoral team, a preacher team, preaching team, will ever lay anything on you that will be as heavy as that. Because none of us can even begin to think of making a claim like Jesus made that day. He's talking to his home people. He's talking to his former Sunday school teachers. Or maybe he helped, maybe made a chair for somebody as working in, his, in Joseph's carpentry shop. These are people, he, he saw, you know, these people growing up, they watched him grow. Hey, listen, he's a hometown boy. And he has the audacity to say, even though they know there's something different about him, he says, this scripture about the promised Messiah is being fulfilled in your sight right now. And you can only imagine the whispering that probably transpired as he said that. Because look what it says. So all, in verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Hey, they're impressed. They are impressed, but they're thoroughly puzzled. Why do we know that? Because they're whispering to one another. Hey, honey, isn't that Joseph's son? <laughs> this guy that is claiming to be the Messiah? Isn't he the little guy that worked in Joseph's shop before he went off to the big city? You see how blind they were? They didn't say, isn't this the Son of God who was born of a virgin right here in our town, in the town of Bethlehem, where shepherds were greeted by angels with the great news? And Mary told us and how wise men, Magi, from far east came all the way to Jerusalem. They knew from a star. They didn't say, isn't this the son? No, they said, isn't this? Yeah, I go back to Roxborough. I have to be real careful. Not so much for me, but I try to protect my dad's good integrity and his good reputation. Because I'll encounter everybody in Roxborough knows my dad. I mean, he's 92 years old. And that's the only place he's ever lived. So why not, right? Everybody knows O.C. And I'm so glad my dad was not a rebel rousing drunkard, you know, in and out of jail and things like that. Because I really, really, really wouldn't want them to know I was O.C.'s boy. 
But then, you know, I'll go throughout in Roxborough and the surrounding area, and, and they'll say, "Hey, aren't you aren't you OC's boy?" And you know, I got I got seven brothers, so I'll say, "It depends." <laughs> do, do they owe you money? Have they offended you? <laughs> they say, "No, no, no, no." OC's got good boys. He's got he's a good man. He's got good. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm one of OC's boys. In fact, I'm his favorite. Kind of like Joseph. <laughs> Not. <laughs> so they are thinking, this is just Joseph's boy. He's making these claims. Jesus demonstrates his omniscience, his all-knowing, because he's reading them like a book. <laughs> they may be whispering among themselves, but he's reading them. He, they could be thinking it, and he's reading them. How do we know that? Because he has a response tailored for what their response is right there. Because in verse 23, and he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. That was a common old f proverb, you know. Basically what we'd say today, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> he said, well, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that old proverb, Phys physician, heal yourself. You, you do all these other miracles and everything. Show us, prove us. You know, that was a tendency for the Jews, wasn't it? The Jews always wanted to sign. You know, they're always pressuring Jesus for a sign. So he says, you know, the, you, you probably use this old proverb. He says, whatever, looking there in verse 23, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, and Jesus had done great miracles all in the region already, and in Capernaum, he's, he's saying, you're saying, do, the also, do also here in your country. What you've done up there in Capernaum, all those miracles, do it here. Jesus says, I know that's what you're thinking. In other words, you don't believe me. You don't believe in me. You don't believe I am who I am. I know that because I know your hearts. Your hearts are hardened. But, you, but you're no different than, than your ancestors, he goes on to say. Because you, you come from a batch of hard-hearted ancestors. And he goes on. And he begins to unfold a passage of Scripture there in verse 23 and 24 and beyond. Add an insult to injury, if you will, as he begins to remind this congregation not only of the fact that their hearts are hardened, but tell, making the comparison. He's telling a story that the Jews were not proud of. Look at verse 24. Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And Jesus would say that again in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 44. But I tell you truly, and he's, he's going back to 1 Kings chapter 17, and then 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 17 is about Elijah. 2 Kings 5 is about Elisha. Two of the most famous, powerful prophets of God in the Old Testament. He said, but I tell you truly, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. That was because of the wicked king Ahab and his sweetheart pagan wife Jezebel. Not too many people named their kids Ahab and Jezebel that I know of. But, but look in verse 26. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. These are Gentile territories. In fact, Sidon is the hometown of Jezebel. You get the picture? God's not sending Elijah to any of the Israelite towns where there were widows in the midst of the famine. He's not sending them to, 
to Capernaum or to Judea or Judah or yeah, he's not sending them. He sends Elijah into a Gentile territory, one of the worst Gentile territories, to a widow there. And of course, we know the story. Elijah ministers to that widow. Now, if that's not bad enough, he's just reminding them. Why did God do that, by the way? Why did God have the prophet Elijah overlook the Israelite widows and go all the way to a pagan Gentile widow because of the hardness of their hearts? They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in Elijah. He goes on in verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. This is in 2 Kings 5. There were many lepers were in, the, in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman. Naaman wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. He was a Syrian general. And Elisha, he came to Elisha, as you well know, and he was seeking healing, and Elisha told him to be dipped in the, in the Jordan River seven times. So, God overlooked His own people and did miracles for Gentiles. What a shameful thing. Why did God do that? Because their hearts were so hardened towards His prophets, they didn't believe. And as a result, they missed out on the miracles of God. You hear what Jesus is saying to His hometown people? You're just like that. Your hearts are just as hard. Your eyes are just as spiritually blind. You're, I, there will be no miracles here because of your hardened hearts. God's not going to do something wonderful through His Messiah for you because you don't even believe. And you know, it's interesting because later Jesus would come back to Nazareth and we find that recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13 and then also in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. But um, if you want to go back and read it. But he came back and guess what? The hearts are still hard. And he still didn't do any miracles. So he's laid this bombshell on them. So we have, looked, we have looked at the Lord's popular initiation quickly as we looked at the shocking declaration. Let's now look at the people's strong reaction. Jesus has just set off a nuclear bomb, spiritually speaking, in the synagogue. He has touched them at a nerve like a... I don't know if you've ever had an abscessed tooth. You talk about an inflamed nerve. It'll bring a strong man to his knees. Jesus has touched a nerve, a spiritual nerve, that has just ignited within them an emotional reaction hard to comprehend. John MacArthur in his commentary said, No amount of miracles would convince those whose minds were hardened. And in John chapter seven, uh, John chapter twelve, verse thirty-seven, Jesus said, "But although he, or, or John says about Jesus, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him." Listen, miracles will not convert people. And now, look at the violent reaction, the strong reaction as the the, the hometown it, they they violently reject his messianic claims. 
Now I've been in some church services and preached some revival services. And you know me, I'm just going to preach the word. And I'm really not in it to gain popularity or get a new job in another church or something like that. I mean, I love the people. I do. And I try to love on all the people that I go preach revival at and try to befriend them and let them know that, hey, you know, I love them and all that. But when I stand in the pulpit, I start laying out some pretty blistering things that, that are convicting, and I can see people squirming. You, you. <laughs> in their, on their face, they're trying to smile. In their mind, I know they're thinking, man, let's get this idiot and run him behind the church and work him over. How dare he come in here and have the audacity to insinuate that there's sin in our hearts. <laughs> but nothing has ever happened to me that would happen to Jesus right here. I'm glad to say, yet. Look at verse 28. Then all those in the synagogue, not, not just the men, <laughs> not, not just the women, <laughs> I can see little babies with their rattlers running out there. I mean, it says everybody in the synagogue. You, I don't know if you've ever stirred up a hornet's nest. I have a few times, sometimes dumb, you know, being dumb, you know, intentionally, sometimes accidentally. Doesn't matter whether you did it on purpose or not. You stir up a hornet's nest, you'll find the whole hornet suddenly doesn't, the whole hive doesn't like you. I was milking the cow one day, and it was a hot day, and I had her parked under the hickory tree, and I was milking away, got a full bucket of milk. I was proud of myself, you know, and so I got ready to go back to the house to deposit the milk for my mom, and I stood straight up, and my head bumped something. Huh. I look up, and I see a gigantic hornet's nest with those white-faced black hornets. Man, those things are kamikazes. <laughs> They're the terrorists of the hornet family. <laughs> they were not happy that my head had upset their hornet's nest. And I'm going to tell you something. Here I am. I had decisions to make. Do I, do I save the cow or save me? Do I untie, untie Bessie? Says that she can run? Or do I just get my hide out of here? You know, I had all, do I throw the milk up in the air? I don't know. But in a blur, all I saw was thousands of hornets pouring out of that thing down towards me. I just bolted with the bucket of milk. I don't know except by miracle how I jumped over that barbed wire fence, three strands, Courtney, with that bucket of milk in my hand. And I don't think I spit more than a teaspoon. <laughs> that was an angry hornet's nest. Why was I tell you, that was an angry synagogue. Man, Jesus had touched a nerve. He had insulted them. He, and to think, he's one of us. Ethel, could you could believe that? He's one of us. And he dared to say that we got hardened hearts. Everybody, rise up. We're going to get rid of this rascal. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I get excited about dramatic moments in the Bible. Verse 28, Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Folks, not just upset. Not just insulted. Not just to say, well, Jesus, you won't ever preach here again. <laughs> They're filled with wrath. Wrath kills, folks. And in verse 29, and rose up and thrust him out, not just the synagogue. They got a hold of our Savior. They don't just drag him out of the church. They're dragging him through the streets. They're dragging him to the brink of a cliff. 
They rose up and thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they do, might do what? That they might throw him down over the cliff. You see what happens when you start exposing people to the truth of the Word of God? Even if you are a hometown boy or girl and they all know you, that even aggravates the situation because they expect you to have a little leniency and to compromise. Wow, things look bad, don't they? But look at verse 30. I just love the way that God just kind of nonchalantly says, here they got him, dragged him through the city, got him to the brink of the... Now, he's going to be thrown over a cliff and just Jesus says, okay, enough of this. <laughs> I'm done with this party. Verse 30, then passing through the midst of them. He's walking through. Look, if Jesus could disguise as being in, in, in the face of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize him, don't you think he could just change? He probably walked through that crowd looking like Elvis Presley. <laughs> I'm just saying, he didn't recognize him. He just passed right on through. Thank you, thank you. God, excuse me, excuse me. I'm going to give it this way. Don't listen. I mean, it's amazing. But why? Why? Because he's afraid of heights? No, 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 no. He's just starting his mission. You're not going to kill me now. Or some of your countrymen will get a hold of me later, but, but no, this is not in the script. I'm not going to die by falling over a cliff. I got a mission to do. And we must also commit to follow Him even if it proves to be costly. And sometimes it costs us the most among those who know us the most and the best. That family member. You telling them about the radical change that has transpired in your life and how, you know, in John chapter 1 verse 12, how you are a son of God now. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it talks about you're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. Galatians 2.20 you're telling them how you've been crucified with Christ and how it's not you but Christ living in you now. How in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3-5 you're trying to explain to them how Paul promised that you are now a citizen of heaven and all the blessings of heaven are yours. You are a resident of heaven. You are, you are part, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are the people of God. You're trying to tell your everyday common folk that know you and have known you for years that that has happened in your life. Be careful. They may throw you over a cliff if you make them look bad. But we have the same responsibility even among that which is common and familiar to us. Co-workers, neighbors, schoolmates. Don't go changing your tune. Don't water down who you are. Be bold. Stand for the truth. It's Christ in you. And if anybody hates you, rejects you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Savior who abides in you. I'll close with this illustration. I had the opportunity to read a good book a year ago called Seal of God. Seal of God. It's a true story told by a former U.S. Navy SEAL 
Chad Williams. I heard him interviewed by evangelist Greg Laurie, a fascinating young man. He was one of 13 out of 173 in his class who even made it through Navy SEAL training to graduate. You've got to be tough. In his book, he describes the training. I mean, it's brutal just to make it as a Navy SEAL. They torture you to the point of death. You've got to really want to be a SEAL. He made it. And he became Navy SEAL. But along the way, God in His providence decided He wanted to turn Chad Williams into a soldier of the cross. And he became a Christian. He was truly converted. So now he's trying to go back to his... And once you're a Navy SEAL, you are assigned to a unit. That's your family. He was supposed to be... His, his group was in Iraq at the time when the, um, the, the, the pirate uh, commandeering of that, um, that freighter, I forget, but off the coast of Africa, Tom Hanks played in a movie. His unit was called. He had packed their diving gear. He's an expert in diving. They were ready to go. They'd gone to the airport. They were ready to fly. That was going to be the team. He was going to be that team that took out those pirates. Sniper shot. But a sandstorm swept in and prevented them from leaving, so they sent another team. But, but, but when he began to share with his comrades his genuine conversion to Jesus Christ and the change that had come over him, they turned on him like a pack of wolves. He describes the torturous, hostile, humiliating, horrific treatment he received at the hands of his own family, if you will, militarily, because they saw the difference. And they thought, He's not the man that he used to be. We can't trust him. And I think it's interesting because towards the end of the book, in their service in Iraq, one night on a mission, his team and some Iraqi soldiers went to the home of a former policeman, or a policeman who was also a terrorist, an Iraqi terrorist. And they were being set up for an ambush. A deadly ambush. And it just so happened the Humvee that he was parked in or sitting in with that big 50 whatever machine gun that shoots through walls and stuff. Just happened to be separated from the rest of it. All of his comrades rushing into that house and in a second the air lit up with blazing hot bullets. They were pinned down and hopeless. And he was sitting out there, the lone guy with the 50 milligram or whatever millimeter machine gun. And he accurately, as a Navy SEAL does, began to take off one after another after another of the ambushers. He saved their lives. Oh, he was a changed man, but he was still a Navy SEAL. I say that Jesus goes home and encounters this kind of hostile reaction. Don't you think that just because you make the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ and you go back to work, or you go back to school, or you go back to the <clears throat> home family reunions, everybody's going to be hugging your neck and patting you on the back because the ones whose hearts are hardened may respond just as hostile to you as Jesus' hometown did to him. But even with that knowledge, folks, we're not in this for popularity. 
We're in it to be faithful. And that's what God calls us to be. And we have the most exact, excellent example walking before us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. Let's bow.